Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Mark Dunlayton. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a segment on why some disagree with the city of Albany's move to fluoridate its water supply. Then, for our peace bucket, we have a report of Black Friday protests at Crossgates Mall in support of ending the attacks on Gaza. Later on, we'll hear from the 10-year-old Colin Ricker about why he supports the New York Heat Act climate proposal. Uh, then Moses Nagel uh, talks with Wafik Thauer of Vermonters for Justice in Palestine about the recent shooting in Burlington of three uh, Palestinian college students. And then we finished with uh, best part two of the uh, coverage of the 200th anniversary of the poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas. The first headlines. The Times Union reports that the price of Christmas trees is rising in 2023. Around 22.3 million Christmas trees were sold nationwide last year, with a median price of $80 a tree. A New Jersey man pleaded guilty Tuesday to aggravated vehicle homicide. The minute he drove drunk at 156 miles per hour in the Northway and was making a snapshot video when in May 2022, he slammed into a vehicle, killing 22-year-old University of Albany student Catherine Fisher. He faces eight and a half to 25 years in state prison. The Times Union reports that the College of St. Rose is teetering on the edge of closure. It has made a last-ditch effort to get the state of the city of Albany to provide emergency funding, which state officials say is unlikely to be provided. The school, which is facing plummeting enrollment, is also looking at merging some of its programs with those of other area colleges. The 41st Troy Victorian Victorian Stroll will take place in downtown Troy uh, on this Sunday from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Attendees can enjoy downtown Troy by shopping, dining, or simply strolling. This year's stroll is celebrating the bicentennial of the poem, "Twas the Night Before Christmas, which was published in the Troy Sentinel in 1823. Channel 6 reports that a shortage of school bus drivers remains a big problem in the capital district since COVID. Hiring and retention continues to be problems despite some recent hikes in pay. The Gazette reports that Schenectady Mayor Gary McCarthy has vetoed the 2024 $109 million budget adopted three weeks late by the city council. McCarthy said he was dissatisfied with the council's cut to his proposals for police and fire and fire department overtime funding and reductions to his water and sewer fee increases. The council would need five votes to override the veto of the budget, which passed with only a four to three majority. That's it for headlines. For our first segment, Mark Dunley interviews Dr. Paul Canet, author of The Case Against Fluoride, about why he thinks the pending decision to reverse the city of Albany's long-standing ban on the fluoridation of its water supply is wrong. We're talking with Paul Conant 
um, retired uh, professor of, of chemistry from St. Lawrence um, University, and also the author of the case against fluoride. And recently, the city of Albany appears to be reversing uh, a long time ago decision not to uh, put fluoride uh, into the water. They held a recent public hearing, and um, certainly the sentiment seems to be in favor of doing it. But, but Paul, you and others don't think it's a great idea to put it's a shocking idea. It was a shocking idea when they tried when they started this 70 years ago. But it's even worse today. It's worse today because the science is in. U.S. government funded studies show that at very low levels, fluoride is capable of lowering the intelligence of children. And these, as I said, are U.S. government studies, funded studies, NIEHS, EPA, and even health. Canada. And uh, there have been a large number of studies, over 50, showing this relationship between the more fluoride a, a child is exposed to or a pregnant woman is exposed to, the lower the intelligence. And for many years, these studies came from India and China. And we documented all of these studies in on our web page, our Fluoride Action Network, fluoridactionalert.org. And in our book, The Case Against Fluoride, which we published in 2010. But the evidence over the years has only got stronger. In 2017, we got the first of the uh, US government funded studies that was Bash Ash 2017. And then that was a study done in Mexico and then followed up a year later by a study done in, in Canada, uh, Green and others, uh, 2019. And then another study by Till in 2020, I believe. So very solid science from leading neuroscientists from uh, America, Canada, Mexico, and other countries. Well, at this recent public hearing before the Albany City Council, uh, Dr. Melinda Clark, who's a pediatrician at Albany Medical Center and apparently wrote the fluoride guidelines for the Albany Academy of Pediatrics, argued that uh, fluoridation provides the greatest benefits for children living in poverty and others who don't have regular access to dental care. You know, isn't this helpful for, for children's teeth? Well, you know, you have to have something wrong with your own brain if you think saving a small amount of tooth decay could possibly justify lowering the intelligence of children throughout the country. This is ridiculous. This woman does not deserve to have a degree, certainly not that position. Um, she has to do her homework. It's utterly irresponsible for a, uh, somebody in a position she has not to have read these studies. And, and to go ahead at this point in time is, is absolutely outrageous. I mean, first of all, let's go back to the first argument. Um, it's a bad medical practice. You shouldn't be using the public water supply to deliver medicine. It means that you're forcing medicine on people without their informed consent. So they don't even win the ethical battle. It's an unethical thing to do, to force medication. And don't say it's not forced because you don't have to drink the water. If you're low income, you have to drink the water that comes through the tap. You can't afford bottled water or reverse osmosis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So 
It is forcing medication on people without their informed consent. And to make matters worse, it's there's very little scientific evidence that it works, that swallowing fluoride lowers tooth decay. There is quite a bit of evidence that brushing it on your teeth using fluoridated toothpaste lowers tooth decay, but very little solid scientific evidence that actually swallowing fluoride lowers tooth decay. And for a simple reason, even the Center for Disease Control admits that the major benefit of fluoride is topical. It works on the outside of the tooth, not from inside the body. And once they admitted that, they should have changed their policy. Instead of forcing everybody to have it in the drinking water, then encourage people to use fluoridated toothpaste. Um, and also do what Scotland is doing with the Child Smile program, which is to introduce toothbrushing as in the school curriculum from the very earliest age. Children in Scotland are taught to brush their teeth in class. They are given a healthy diet in class, healthy snacks, carrots and vegetables, fruit instead of um, juicy um, fruit juices and, and whatever, um, fizzy drinks. Avoid sugar, get your minerals, have a healthy diet. And not only is the Child Smile program cost effective, it's cheaper than fluoridation, but it involves parents from a very early age. And what that does is to remove one serious problem, which is baby bottle tooth decay. Often the, the tooth decay, which leads to operations under anesthesia for young children, is caused by babies sipping on sugared water, milk, even Coca-Cola for hours on end. It rots the top teeth to the gums. And sadly, they have to get the operations in hospitals. That is very expensive. But if you get a chance to educate the parents about this issue, then you can dramatically reduce the cost for pediatric dentistry. And that's where Albany should be going. Better education, not fluoridation. Now, I understand that a lot of the countries in Europe have moved away from fluoridation, and the studies show that there's not been an increase in tooth decay. In fact, in some cases, it's been improved. Is that Absolutely. correct? Absolutely. Yeah, that is correct. Scotland is a classic example. Scotland had a, a lawsuit back in, I think, in the 1990s, which ruled that it was um, unethical. It was mass medication and was not acceptable. And so Scotland had to find an alternative. And they've used the Child Smile program. But most of Europe uses fluoridated toothpaste as the delivery system of choice for fighting tooth decay, not putting fluoride in the water. I think only 2%, 2% of countries in Europe have fluoridation. Ireland has mandatory fluoridation, would you believe, under American pressure. England has about 10% of the population drinking fluoridated water. And Spain is about 2 or 3%, but going down. Most of the rest of the countries do not fluoridate their water. Some started, like Germany, like Netherlands, Sweden, but stopped. You mentioned that Scotland had a lawsuit. I understand, aren't you involved in some type of lawsuit, maybe against CPA or one of the federal yes, governments? How has that been going in the last few months? Extremely well. The two very important things that the Florida Action Network did in 2016, and you can get this all from our website, floridalert.org. In 2016, we asked the National Toxicology Program to review the neurotoxicity of fluoride. 
and they did and they spent the last six years reviewing that and come out with a very very good report that's number one also in 2016 we petitioned the epa under the toxic substances and control act task to ban the use of of adding fluoride to the drinking water ban the deliberate addition of fluoride to the drinking water because of this growing evidence that it lowers the iq of children at the very levels at which we we fluoridate and that lawsuit was uh, heard in june of 2020 and we did extremely well there and the judge more or less gave us the victory except he said i want to wait for the national toxicology program to, to produce their review so starting in 2020 we've been waiting for this review waiting and waiting and waiting the other side has been delaying it in every way they can but it finally may of 2022 the ntp science team declared that they had completed the report and uh, produced a written copy of the final report and then the politics came in then the deputy administrator of the nih rachel levine stepped in and said you cannot publish that report she comes above the ntp above the niehs so she forbade the report Before we're out of time Final 10 seconds, what do you got? I just say this is a tragedy which can be avoided. This is absolutely unnecessary to lower the intelligence of the children of Albany for a very small gain in tooth decay, which fluoridealert.org. Connie, author of the case against fluoride, and this is Mark Dunley with the Hudson Mohawk magazine. So there'll apparently be a continuing series of public meetings uh, and hearings before this is adopted. I do remember, I don't know, it was 30 years ago uh, when Albany voted against fluoridation of the water system. And that was because there was a city council member, Tom Natito, who happened to be a staff person for Assembly Member Richard Gottfried, who was chair of the Assembly Health Committee. And so Tom had been exposed to a lot of the health debates about fluoride and he stepped in and stopped it and at this point we don't have uh, that type of situation uh, in the city of albany the day after thanksgiving is called black friday traditionally the busiest shopping day of the year for our weekly peace segment mark interviewed several participants at the pro-palestinian event at crossgates mall calling for a boycott of companies that profit from business with israel on november 24th as a four-day halt to the attacks in Gaza by Israel started to allow for a limited hostage exchange, shut it down for Palestine protests took place across the country on Black Friday, the busiest shopping day of the year. The rallies called for a boycott of companies such as Motorola, Puma, Siemens, SodaStream, and Remax for their role in profiting from the occupation of Gaza. BDS, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanction, is a Palestinian-led movement started in 2005 to peacefully protest Israel's occupation of Gaza. Inspired by the South African anti-apartheid movement, the BDS call urges action to pressure Israel to comply with international law. In the capital district, about 150 protesters braved the freezing cold on Friday at, at Crossgates. We hear from several participants. My name is Chris Garamon. I'm an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. We're out here today in order to 
protest against these companies that are profiting intensely off of the genocide of Palestinians. Uh, this includes companies like Puma, HP, uh, Siemens, uh, Sabra, Hummus, a lot of companies that people don't have any knowledge about invest in Israel and profit off of the displacement and murder of Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza. And so they have businesses here at the Cross Gates Mall? Uh, so some of them have actual stores, but mostly it's their products are sold all over the mall. Friday and, you know, hostages are now being released. There's, a, I guess, a four-day pause in the attack. What, what needs to happen at this point? We've seen the effect of both the Palestinian resistance movement in Palestine and people all over the world protesting for a free Palestine has been able to give Palestinians leverage in order to get a prisoner exchange that they had wanted several weeks ago, but now they're able to get it due to their fighting and our fighting here and abroad. What we need to do is continue the fight for free Palestine, shut down these businesses that profit off of the genocide, and close down a lot of these There's military uh, contractors and weapons manufacturers all over both the Hudson Valley, all over the country, that are directly killing Palestinians in order to further U.S. imperialism. Now, this has been, you know, 75 years, and undoubtedly, at least in my experience in the United States, this has been the, um, you know, largest level of support for, for Palestine that we've seen over time. Is that moving the Biden administration and the Democrats to revise their positions at all? I don't know. I don't know how responsive our politicians are directly to us, but if they get, if they're, if the capitalists who bankroll them start to get a little scared, that if they keep up with these positions, it'll hit their bottom lines, then that can move them, right? But I, I think it's directly affecting the capitalist bottom line that drives this and their fear, not appeals to their morality because Joe Biden is a Zionist to his core and nothing's ever going to change that um, except for impacting his donors and the money. My name is Elizabeth Zahdan. I am Palestinian and an American. Unfortunately, I'm a taxpayer who is funding killing my, you know, and, you know, the people in, in Palestine and destroying uh, my ancestors' land. And right now, my dad's land in Jerusalem is being uh, terrorized by the settlers and trying to harass and hurt my great, uh, you know, aunties in there and my cousins because they want the house. And as they say, if we don't steal it, someone else will steal it. I'm standing for the right thing, you know, and, and just being a human being and a Palestinian who is living in the United States, chose the land, you know, to live in because we were, un, you know, lucky to stay in Palestine and live there because we were one of those people who became, you know, refugees. Um, and my parents, they had to find a refuge somewhere. And they moved from one land to another. Eventually, they became American over here. And I understand you made some All United for Free Palestine buttons today. Yeah. How have they been going? Well, um, I, w I wish I brought more with me to give it a, more because I didn't know um, there are going to be this many people. Um, um, it was something that of the little money that I have, um, I chose you know, to do this to thank everybody that they are still humanity in this world. There are still people, they see the righteous thing. So the hope in getting the, you know, our land back again, it's, it's there and it's coming and it's gonna happen because of all these kind people. And I just wanted to say thank you to them.
Now we're we're speaking on Friday, and in a few hours, um, you know, there's gonna be a, I guess, a four-day pause in, in the attack. Some hostages is gonna be released. Are you optimistic that this actually will will stop the bombing, or is it just gonna continue uh, in a few few days? I am very realistic that this took 75 years, and is uh, is not gonna be resolved just like that. There will be more people are dying. Unfortunately, the reason why, because there are being funded by our tax money and supported by the weapons that we are shipping to. And I hope, I hope that this will stop. But when and how many more lives to get people to see the truth and, and stop fake news and stop the lies in the, in the media? I don't know how much, and I'm afraid for more lives. I'm afraid for more uh, innocent people who they have nothing to do with this. It's just because they are defending their land. They are staying there and they don't want to leave their land. This is the land that they inherited from their ancestors and, and the only place. And, and why do we have to tell them, move out of their land? We don't like it to happen to us. Why are we? doing it to others. I don't know how, how many more lives to speak for that. My name is Kaya. I'm from Hudson, New York, and I'm here today as a Jewish woman who believes that at its core, um, Israel is founded on a false notion that safety for Jews relies on the oppression and violent uh, occupation of Palestinian people and that the end to this genocide is the only way that Palestinians and Israelis alike will be able to experience safety. I also was raised as an anti-Zionist Jew to understand that when we said never again after the Holocaust, that means never again for anyone, and that our safety is intertwined with the liberation of all. And because of the generational trauma combined with the nationalist propaganda um, of the U.S. and Israel. Many Jews have been raised to believe that somehow we have to perpetuate the same horrors and atrocity that were perpetuated upon us during the Holocaust onto another people and somehow that gives us power or somehow that's justified and that's just wrong. And I'm here in solidarity with Palestinian people fighting for liberation. Over 15,000 Palestinians have been murdered since October 7th. And this didn't start on October 7th. More than a third of those are children. And all of them are innocent people. This has been 75 years of violent occupation of a people. Imprisonment, apartheid, complete and utter horror and terror that's been imparted by the Israeli state. So what we're seeing is the outcomes of that. When you terrorize a population for 75 years and every effort at peaceful demonstration, of which there have been many on the part of Palestinian people, have been met with violence from the Israeli state. People peacefully protesting along the Gaza border were shot and killed. There's nothing left to do. And so I'm calling on all people, and I'm here in the freezing cold, at the Crossgates Mall to call on all people to recognize the way that our dollars as Americans are funding this genocide. When you patronize stores 
that are Israeli-owned or invested in and benefit from the genocide, you are funding this. As taxpayers, we are funding this. We just sent $14.8 billion to Israel with no strings attached, no constraints to further destroy and wipe out an entire civilization, an entire population of people. And so it's time for every single person to understand that you are complicit and you have to take action. And one of the most powerful ways we can do that is with our dollars. I ask that all people boycott many lists online, very easy to access, among them things like SodaStream, Puma, HP, Hewlett Packard, uh, many, many companies that we need to boycott. And on Black Friday, this is a day to buy nothing and demonstrate that we are not willing to stand with this genocide and that we are going to go down on the right side of history. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So after the interview, uh, I learned that the last speaker was actually a co-founder of the Wave radio station down in Columbia that often plays our, our stop. Um, this is now Wednesday, November 29th. They are negotiating uh, an extension of the truce. Uh, I will note that most of the prisoners have, that have been released by uh, Israel for, that are Palestinians. In fact, they've never been convicted of anything. And in fact, many of them are young people who were thrown in jail for throwing stones at the soldiers. But very exciting, uh, next Wednesday, uh, December 6th at 7 p.m., uh, we're going to have a Pulitzer Prize winner, journalist Chris Hedges here at the Sanctuary. And you can go to mediasanctuary.org to get more information about that event. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunlay. And I'm Sina Bazilahiki. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy. WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady. WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, somebody you'll meet at the uh, Victorian Stroll in downtown Troy. And you can find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. In this next story, Elizabeth E.P. Press correspondent spoke with 10-year-old Colin Ricker, along with his mom, about why he spoke at Wednesday's rally at the Capitol in support of the New York Heat Act climate proposal. This Thursday, November 30th, the Renewable Heat Now campaign is hosting a gathering of youth climate leaders from across New York State to advocate for a sustainable and equitable future. Today, we are joined by Colin Ricker from Sleepy Hollow, New York, who is the youngest person scheduled to speak at the press conference in Albany on Thursday. Colin, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hello. Colin, how did you get invited to speak at this event called Youth Climate Leaders Unite for the New York Heat Act? Well, I talked at this thing called, yeah, Mothers Out Front. And um, yeah, basically, I just like said a few things that came to mind. And the guy was like, hey, do you want to like, um, you want to talk at this thing? And I was like, yeah, sure. And do you remember what you said at the Mothers Out Front event that you were at? So by the time I get my driver's license, um, 
there will be no more glaciers in Glacier National Park and that this will affect kids more than grown-ups. Mm. We're going to like finish the beginning. And you were recently at Glacier National Park. Can you tell me about your trip there? Yeah, so I was with some of my friends. And then at the very end, I saw this video, so. Uh... Colin, how old are you? Where do you live? And what, what do you think you're gonna say? What is gonna be your message on Thursday? Basically, I'm just gonna repeat the stuff that I said um, at the Mother's Up Front thingy. And when you say this thing about by the time you have your driver's license, so you're 10 now, is that correct? So yes. by 2030, there will be no more glaciers. In Glacier National Park. And what when you think about that, what does that mean well, to you? Technically more like give or take, but yeah. Uh -huh. um, what does that mean to you when you when you say that? Uh, basically that we're like totally like making a nice national park, like lose the meaning of its name for one. Uh-huh. When you think about climate change, what do you think, like besides Glacier National Park, what do you think, how else do you think climate change will affect affect young people in the coming years? Well, for one thing, the skies will be green every day. What do you mean? Uh, well, there was bad air quality, like in the spring, and this is like... Yeah, that it skies were green. So yeah. You mean because of the forest fires? Yeah. Do you learn about climate change in school? Uh, not really. Rachel, you are Colin's mom. I think you said that he made these remarks at the Mothers Out Front event at the Hudson Valley Writers Center maybe a month or so ago. What is the idea of you know, pushing on your local representation, your assembly person, Shimsky, to stand up for fighting for more climate change policy. It, it felt like very much an adult event. It was mostly adults and mostly adults speaking. <clears throat> and it was sort of interesting, I thought, when Colin like said what he said, because um, the kids had been mostly quiet. And I think and like Colin said, I don't think they're talking about it that much at school. And I think there's a sphere of um, talking about the climate crisis with this age group, but like clearly they are very much aware of what's going on. As Colin mentioned, the skies were yellow and green last spring. And I think <clears throat> they weren't allowed to go outside um, well, at school. So they're, they're very aware of what's going on. And I think sort of not uh, sort of shielding them from this or assuming that they're not paying attention or that this isn't a concern of theirs, uh, is short-sighted. So it was like really interesting to, to see that. And honestly, I, I hadn't really heard Colin talk about it um, before. So it was, it was, I mean, as someone who was there witnessing it, I was also um, surprised and really proud that he um, said what he said to, um, you know, such a uh, important legislator in our region. And um, I think that that's what we, has to be done. Like that, that he, he kind of like, pushed her and 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 she had to kind of address the fact that um you know this is something that's affecting kids um maybe even more so than adults um and that that should also be recognized um and they should be part of the conversation as well I've opened it up for questions and like mostly it was just adults I think there was an assumption that the kids were just there in the background um but like he really 
I, I think I was surprised that he, he wanted to say something and that he had been thinking about it. Um, I take my kids to these national parks every summer and like, it's sort of unclear sometimes how, you know, it's a lot of work and it's like kind of, um, it can be pretty stressful. I flew across country with like all of my camping gear and two children this summer. And like, there's definitely moments when it's like, uh, maybe we should just be going to like a beach resort like everyone else, you know? And so you're not sure like- We do that this time because we're busy. You're still going on a camping adventure this summer. But, you know, you don't really know how, whether it's worth it, like all this, this effort to show them these things. And so it was a really cool experience that clearly it's, it's having an impact on him and he's like kind of thinking about it and, you know, hopefully appreciating. I mean, the, the sort of, I think the ironic thing is we got to Glacier National Park and the wildfire smoke in late August in Montana was, was intense enough that it was hard. The visibility wasn't great. So we, we actually couldn't clearly see glaciers because the smoke was really making it difficult to see. Uh, but, you know, at least they did get to see them uh, because like Colin mentioned, there is a lot of, um, information in the park about how this is like part of their concern is that that these glaciers are melting and uh, and it's happening pretty quickly so colin you with all of these trips to national parks that your mom takes you on i believe you are quite the junior ranger what is a junior ranger and how many badges do you think you have by now well, Junior Ranger is sort of someone who, like, protects the park, but doesn't really do it as, like, a job, like an official job. Um, I'd say I have about, like, 20, give or take, badges. So that means you've been to 20 national parks already? Uh, there's probably, no, like, no, more, because, like, there, yeah, there was somewhere I just, like, didn't feel like doing the packet, because, like, I was just, like, you know. Or there was like a few that I went to when I was really young. Uh-huh. And there are national parks, some are yeah. state historic yeah. districts and state parks. Yeah. But he has a lot. That's amazing. So back to this uh, event on Thursday, the event is organized, the rally is organized to demand climate action and the inclusion of the New York Heat Act in Governor Kathy Hochul's executive budget. Now, those are some really big words, but basically, what, what is the call? What, do you, what, what is your call for on Thursday? I mean, I'm just like basically with all the other people just trying to get Governor Hochul to like, yeah, include the thing in her budget. Colin, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you want to make sure our audience knows? No, not really. How about you, Rachel? Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you want to make sure that our audience knows? Colin, are you nervous to talk, to be the youngest person speaking? No, not really. When I get downstairs, grab some chips. <laughs> <laughs> are you, like, I'm curious, like, were you nervous to speak in front of the assemblywoman when at that event? Or, do, like, how did you feel? No comment. You weren't nervous? Wow. And why did you decide to speak? Um, mostly because, like, I mean, I had to make a statement and, like, some kids have to say something. Mm. And you felt like all the adults were speaking up and none of the kids were, so it was time for you to uh, have your voice be heard? Yeah. Yeah. So I remember many years ago being at the Acadia National Park and the park ranger asked, who here can make a sound like a loon? 
and so my son Reed made an incredibly good loom sound, which apparently he had learned at his uh, summer camp at the State uh, Museum. Um, one little correction, this uh, rally panel is going to be on Thursday, November 30th. It's at the uh, Capitol, we're going to believe, at 11 a.m. And the New York Key Act is probably the major bill that the legislature failed to pass last year. It would try to cap low-income utility bills at about 6% of income, and would also end this massive subsidy for fossil fuels, basically called the 100-foot rule. If you hook up a new gas line and it's within 100 feet of an existing rule, you get it for free, even though it actually should cost tens of thousands of dollars, and people want to end that fossil subsidy. On November 25th, three college students of Palestinian descent were shot while walking together in Burlington, Vermont. Moses Nagel spoke with Wafik Faur of Vermonters for Justice in Palestine about the shooting. Until now, what we know that three Palestinian students who graduated from the same high school, it's called the Friends High School in Ramallah. So they know each other and they grow up together. Uh, they graduated from that high school and they ended up in three different American colleges. They decided to come to Burlington to spend time with one of these Palestinian students, a grandmother, who lives in North Prospect Street in Burlington, and to spend the holiday there. They were uh, coming back for dinner around 6.20 on the evening. A man uh, jumped from a porch side of the house and start shooting at them. Two of them, they were wearing uh, the Palestinian kofiya, which is the very well-known headscarf on the Arab world, and especially for the Palestinians. So he shot two of them, followed the third one, and shot him. Now, they found a suspect, I think 48-year-old white male, and until this moment, why we are not happy, we are happy somebody got caught and the police have some kind of evidence. But the state attorney, Sarah George, uh, the chief of the police, Morad, and the mayor of Burlington, Weinberger, spoke to the media on the city hall, and none of them called it as hate crime. And this is the cusp of the whole question. Why three young Palestinian men, they survive living under uh, direct occupation and apartheid in Israel and came to uh, best colleges here. And when they arrived uh, to Burlington, they have to face a shooting injury and one of those injuries is the fact that uh, Hisham, one of them, uh, he's paralyzed from the waist down. As Americans, we have to think about it. What brought us to a situation like this? What kind of a feeling that prepared an American to go and to purchase a gun only last month and to choose to shoot 
Dorset 3, Young Palestinian Arabs. It is the atmosphere on the federal level. We are talking about 15,000 lives have been lost in the last 55 days. And we have administration, Biden and Lincoln and others. They never stopped supporting and giving diplomatic support to State of Israel. They never criticized Israel occupation and apartheid. And they are sending weapons and ships and sitting on the war room with the leaders of Israel. The U.S. is part of this crime and part of killing Palestinians on Gaza. So talking about the Palestinians as only one party, Hamas, and now we are seeing a chapter of a genocide and a chapter of ethnic cleansing against the Palestinian people. Here locally, as activists, we've been attacked many, many times. Every time we bring the subject of Palestine and we try to educate the uh, public about the right of the Palestinians for self-determination and the human rights and equal rights. When we brought a resolution to the city of Burlington about a year and a half ago, the same mayor, Miro Weinberger, he was against any kind of language that calling to protect the uh, right of the Palestinians. Many institutions, unfortunately, they claim that they are faith-based institutions. They help and send thousands of males to our council members to prevent them from voting for that. When we made sure as activists we talked to the same council members and they promised to sign it. And they brought a lot of lobbyists from outside, APAC and the American President's Jewish Committee and Anti-Defamation League. And they attacked us with thousands of emails that scared the council members and forced us to shelve that resolution out. And now we are working on another resolution and we're asking the council members that kind of atmosphere and the mood of fear and the horrific crime that took place in our streets in Burlington. It is time to re-examine our position as Americans, re-examine our position as city of Burlington, and take serious look of what's happening over there. Every time we talk about this subject in our colleges, supporting the Student for Justice in Palestine or other organizations, we've been labeled anti-Semitic. And anti-Semitic is a crime, and I understand that, and we should stand with our Jewish siblings to fight against any form of anti-Semitism. But the struggle of the Palestinians has nothing to do with religion. And when people combine and make it the same, Zionism and Judaism, they miss the point, and they get in a conflict. Unfortunately, the Zionist movement succeeded that to put itself as the sole representative of the Jewish voices. But we can tell the, the, the listeners that uh, the strongest alliance we have with the Palestinian struggle in the U.S. and Europe are a Jewish voice for peace, which is the largest 
a Jewish organization that stand against Zionism and with the liberation of the Palestinians. And I asked other towns to adopt resolution we that we wrote recently that racism in Israel against the indigenous people of Palestinians shouldn't be accepted. And the American people who work for, for justice and peace have a voice to say that loudly. We see and we feel a lot of solidarity lately in the last 54 days, but the occupation will not end overnight, and we need the solidarity and support of every person who stands for justice. I think that there's actually been a lot of Jewish people, along with others, you know, that have been warning that weaponizing anti-Semitism and making it be synonymous with support for Israel endangers Jews facing actual anti-Semitism as well as Muslims and others. It seems like such a clear example. You spoke about a resolution. What else would you recommend for local communities to humanize people and avoid this sort of thing happening in their community? To be aware and to educate themselves about the Palestinian question, both organizing uh, anti-Semitism and lately they are saying, well, the Jewish students are afraid on campuses, or now I hear because after the shooting, oh, Jewish community are fearful, something will happen. But that doesn't mean that the other communities are not scared and not fearful and not angry. The Palestinian and Arab and Muslim community, we have been facing this for years. The United States have been on a 20-years war on Muslim world. And this war, it brought atmosphere of anti-Arabs, anti-Palestinian, and Islamophobia. We have to work together as both communities, but in a clear direction that when we criticize Israel, we are not criticizing the faith of Judaism, and we separate between both, and we both have the same enemy. American white supremacists, they're going to hunt both of us, and for that, we have to be careful how we can achieve more understanding between both communities. Is there anything you'd like to add, or is there anything for people who want to check on the status of these the young men. One of them is out of the hospital. The other is improving and in a great spirit. Our third Palestinian young man, he is, is still on uh, ICU, on stable condition, but paralyzed. And so what um, the police in Burlington are saying is that apparently the gunman just started shooting, and because he didn't actually say anything, they don't have evidence yet that what motivated uh, the shooting, and that's why they've not yet brought uh, hate crime. Uh, and that was um, Moses Nagel's segment with uh, Wafik Bauer of Vermonters for Justice in Palestine. And we close out tonight with Carolyn Tennant's interview with the author of Twas the Night, the Art and History of the Classic Christmas Poem. Aunt Pamela McColl is the author and Kathy, Kathy Sheehan, Executive Director of the Hart Cluett Museum. 
They spoke about the local connection to the poem, which was published here in Troy and is celebrating its 200th anniversary. This year marks the 200th anniversary of the publication of Twas the Night Before Christmas. And I'm thrilled to be here with Pamela McCall, author of Twas the Night, the Art and History of the Classic Christmas Poem, as well as Kathy Sheehan, foremost scholar of local history here in Troy and the executive director of the Hart Cluett Museum. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, first of all, Pamela, you have this amazing research and now a resource. Can you talk a bit about this work that you've done in advance of the publication and sort of the archival research that you've been doing to make this come together? How long did it take you? It was around 10 years I started this. I started in 2012. I've been to Troy, I think, five times now. And I was there in 2012 and 2014. I was part of the uh, mock trial, the theatrical production on who wrote this because of the debate over the Livingston versus Moore. And I met Kathy then at Hart Cluett. I just loved Troy. I spent three or four days that year and I just thought it was snowy and it was, it was so great. So it was just you know, an interest in Troy. And, I, and I've maintained that interest in Troy. Um, I think it's a really interesting community, um, really supportive. And, and the tie to the poem, this poem is Troy's. It was published as Kathy and I, you know, December the 23rd of 1823 by the editor Orville Holly in the Troy Sentinel. And the building's still there. It's a different company in the building. But, you know, it, it, it really is Troy's. You are the epicenter of this entire thing. Although Moore is from Chelsea, the poem was first published for the world. And, you know, what's so fascinating is that Orville Holly wrote this great preface. And his glowing preface is what followed the poem around for the first republications and got sort of put fire under it, you know. So about the Sentinel, um, Kathy, can you tell us a little bit about um, the publication and what the Sentinel was and the sort of the history of that? In the 1820s, there actually were about six or seven newspapers that were in Troy. Troy was already really establishing itself as a, a main center of commerce. And uh, so we had a number of, of newspapers and the Sentinel starts out as a, a weekly paper. Then it does go to, you know, their papers are published in the morning and the evenings and things like that. Orville Luther Holly is this, you know, really amazing publisher that's there until the 1830s. So, yeah, the, so, so from our end, you know, the story, um, even when we had the mock trial, it was, you know, it's like, okay, well, you know, was it Livingston? Was it Clement Black Moore? I, I think it was more myself, um, you know, but no one has disputed that it wasn't first published in Troy. And, and uh, you know, in December 23rd of 1823, as Pamela was said. So, um, so that's really, you know, I, we like to hang on to that one. <laughs> and the way it came to the Troy Sentinel was through Harriet Butler, who was a family friend of the, of the Moors and who we believe that she visited the Moor home and possibly transcribed it from the family album in the front hall and then made her way back to Troy with this copy. And then, you know, as unbeknownst to, to Moore, um, gave it to Orville Holly or possibly Sarah Sackett gave it to Orville Holly as well. So we're not too sure about all of these details. There's different, there's some documentation that supports all of this. Some. Well, the other thing that I, it's exciting for us is um, Myron King. Uh, you know, when you think of, you know, you look at the illustrations, but the very first time is yes. when Myron King does this in 1830. And so you get that first image of the sled going over the rooftops and, yeah. you know, yeah, you're right. Everybody's kind of taken that in, in interpretation in so many different ways, but that was the first time. You know, yes. so and I, I love that. And he himself, Myron King, has this amazing, I mean, matter of fact, he is the engraver for Lafayette's badge um, yes. for um, for the visitation that's in yeah. as well. As he did, you know, you know, he had an incredibly long career doing wonderful engravings for 
early transits, Neely Bells, you know, many, many. What's fun fun about Myron King, too, is that Myron King, when you open up the Torres Sentinel for December 23rd of 1823, and you open it up, well, over on page two, across (laughs) from the poem, is a little advertisement with a little, it said, Hi, I'm I'm new to Troy. I'm new a graver. I'm looking for business. And right. if you look across the page at the poem, like that he would be immortalized for the very first illustrator of this right. very famous right. poem. Very, yeah. Little did he know, right, that his future, this legacy you know, was, you know, like, on right. the opposite page, yeah. waiting to be illustrated by him. When did the planning start for what's coming up? Can you just talk a bit, a bit about how that collaboration came to be and well, we talked about it when Pam Pam came last year and yeah. and uh, did did a book signing for for Twas the Night, and uh, we already knew that we were going to be you know doing the Green Show. Um, and when I say doing the Green Show, it's this is the fifty members of the Van Rensselaer Garden Club who um, decorate the our historic eighteen twenty seven uh, federal style townhouse, and they're taking each stanza of the poem. And the ladies in that committee in the room do interpret do an interpretive decorating. And it's all fresh greens, which is also really unique. You know, I had told Pam that that was what our intention was already. And uh, she immediately said, oh, good, I'll come back. <laughs> then we had to get the um, uh, Red Star County Regional Chamber of Commerce on board. You know, we said, look, this is huge. This is the two, 200th anniversary. This should be the theme, you know, all, all the way through. So... Um, so you mentioned the annual greens show, mm-hmm. Kathy. this has a rich history of its own. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a bit about that, what has been yeah. done in the past to celebrate Twas the Night. So this is our 67th year of doing this. Um, as I said, 50 members of the Van Rensselaer Garden Club, as well as some of their associate members, each have committees for each of these rooms, about, you know, 12, 13 rooms of the house. And um, they, we have a different theme every year, but every 10 years we have celebrated a visit from St. Nicholas. And I know that when they did this, looking through their minutes, they, they did the math. So they knew, <laughs> they knew we would be coming up on the, uh, I'm sure they were hoping that we were coming back, you know, on, on the, uh, on the uh, 200th anniversary. So um, it's just an amazing community event where, and, and actually we are the impetus for the Troy Victorian Stroll. And now the Victorian Stroll, you know, thousands of people are down for that. And everybody says, this is how they start off their holiday season by coming to the, see the green show. And then of course, participating in the Victorian Stroll. And, uh, and so it's wonderful. We have a community night uh, on Thursday night, which is the November 30th. That's the first night of the first day of the show. We run right through um, December 3rd. And but Thursday night is community night. So it's free from five to eight. Santa Claus is in the front parlor. I do stories under the tree and every I do, you know, little two, three stories every 15, 20 minutes and always wrap it up with the night before Christmas. <laughs> Even when it's not the the big 10th anniversaries or the two others, we always, always do it. Everybody, you know, says it in unison, the, the parents and grandparents, everybody's sitting, kids sitting on the floor. It's just it's really um, it's it's magical that evening. It really is. Pamela, you also have quite a bit going on when you're in Troy. Can you uh, give us an overview? What's happening where? On the 29th, it is the Hart Cluett. And then we're having a reception to follow at the Art Center for Ed Wheeler's art exhibit, Santa Classics. And I'll be there as well. And uh, it's a really fun exhibit of Santa Claus um, through uh, works of art through the years. It's, it's a really fun thing. 
And then there is on November the 30th, as Kathy mentioned, there's the Green Show again, which is open to the public. It's family night, right, Kathy? Family? Yep, that's a community night, yep. Family. And uh, I'll be autographing my books and with the gift shop and all of that. And then on um, December the 2nd, I'm speaking at the Tory Library at 3 o'clock in the afternoon till 5. And then on December the 3rd is the great stroll event from 11 to 11 to, 11 five. to 5. Okay. And uh, I'll be at the Art Center. Kathy will be at the Heart of Pluet. And uh, we expect 25,000 people. I mean, it's going to be a very big deal. There's a lot of publicity. I know there's some major international media flying in, which I just found out about, which is really exciting. So I've been trying to get some attract some attention for Troy on this one. And it looks like we're going to deliver on that, which is great. And then uh, on uh, December the 7th is the Dinner Orville Holly Awards Dinner. And that will be a great event. I think that's sponsored by the uh, Chamber of Commerce. And then the final event is December the 23rd. It's from 11 until 2. It's a luncheon, a light lunch at the Troy Library. The public is welcome to attend. And I'll be there. And then we're going to have a Zoom, um, get a Zoom with a thousand people possibly on that Zoom call. That's the go. max. You can't, you can't do any more than that. And then that's it. And then uh, at that event, we're going to make some announcements about the Lafayette tour um, coming to Troy. It was reported that after Lafayette came to Troy and went to the Emma Willard with Harriet Butler and Sarah Sackett and Emma Willard, he told the newspaper, and it's written, that his time spent in Troy was one of the best days of his life. Thank you both so much for spending your time with us, uh, and hopefully people will be able to access all of the activities, where things are taking place, when things are happening, and definitely check out the Heart Cluett Museum's website, um, because mm -hmm. there's a very interesting story behind the Greens um, show and its connection to Twas the Night. So thank you both again so much. Uh, it was a pleasure talking mm -hmm. with you. Thank you so thank much. You. Appreciate thank, it. Thank you. This has been Carolyn Tennant reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And I'll just quickly point out that the actual name of the poem was A Visit from St. Nicholas by Clement Moore. I find it hard to believe if somebody lives in rural Rensselaer County that not even a mouse um, was uh, stern and with Carolyn Tennant was a interviewing Pamela McCall and, and Kathy Sheehan. Uh, that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Uh, I'm Mark Dunley. Uh, Cena was uh, our, our co-host. Uh, we want to thank our engineer, Joan Eason, and then all the other volunteers, uh, Moses Nagel, Carolyn Tennant, and EP Elizabeth Press. Um, we want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays, 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear our show or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. We appreciate you listening. Until next time. <laughs>